If you have your Bible today, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. If you have your workbook, the title of this message that you'll find in the workbook is called, We Have a Job to Do. Oh, that's nice. Look at that. That's you. Y'all didn't know the worship leader also carried chairs. That's the church I love. Amen. Amen. Remember those stools? For a little while, we were at a bar in Globeville, and we had to literally completely empty the place and then completely refill it. Do you remember that? What were we thinking? Man, what a church. Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read for you today verses 19 through 26. In today's message, we're going to read a passage of Scripture and a line in Scripture that many, many of us are familiar with, and I hope to put some skin on it for us so that we can understand exactly what the Lord is trying to say through the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 through 26, it says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. (laughs) That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have an ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Today's message is called, We Have a Job to Do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great opportunity to be in your presence together. We thank you for your word. And God, I'm asking that today you would just have your way. It is always my earnest prayer that you would use me exactly as you see fit, but I'm also praying for these, your people, that you would also use us in this time of hearing your word, that we would be changed and then transformed and then commissioned to be used by you. Let us be the kind of church that doesn't simply receive ministry, but gives ministry. In Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we talked about the joy in pain. The apostle was writing from prison. Paul writes from a Roman prison. He's chained, likely one hand to one guard, another hand to another guard, and he he pens or more likely dictates this conversation to the church in Philippi, the first church planted in Macedonia or modern-day Europe, and it is a small but vibrant church, not in a big city, but a city that is at the at the edge of the exchange of information. And he writes this letter from prison very close to the end of his life with what most scholars to b- believe to be this, the single greatest sense of joy in any of his letters. He talks about joy more in this letter than any other letter that he writes. And he writes with a sense of optimism and exuberance and excitement as if to say, I'm in prison, isn't that great? 
And I imagine that the people in Philippi, when they receive this message, are so encouraged by the life of Paul to know that he suffers, and he suffers for them, and he doesn't even consider it suffering. And he begins to shift this conversation in the beginning of the letter here after talking about how wonderful struggle can be if it's in the name of Jesus to challenge us to to consider the duality of the Christian experience. Every one of us here today should be in some sense of duality, which is to say, I, I, I know I'm here now, but I've been thinking about what's to come. If you're a believer, you should be from time to time thinking like, I kind of can't wait to get to heaven. <laughs> I mean, I think about that. You ever have a bad day and you're like, you can just, we can do this now. <laughs> you should be in a little give and take. You should be there because heaven, time with Jesus, eternity with the Savior is good. But you should also be there because time on this earth, this fallen world filled with all of its sin, it shouldn't feel good. One of the hallmarks of whether or not you're really saved or the Holy Spirit lives with you, inside of you, dwells within you, and has made his home within you, is that sometimes in this world you feel out of place. That's a good thing. If you, if you ever walk with people you used to walk with pre-Jesus and you feel like, well, I don't fit anymore, that's a good thing. You should be in that sort of discomfort from time to time. This duality is not unique to just Christians, though. Every human from all walk of life, walks of life ha has some experience where what they focus on can be different than what they're living within. And I hope that over the last couple of weeks you've heard me connect much of our teaching to some of the words of the most vibrant black poets and scholars. Today I want to read you another poem that, that puts some, some flesh on this idea of duality. Then I want to share with you why I've been doing that this week. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote The Souls of Black Folk in 1903. He said this about duality. He said, one ever feels his two-ness, an American and a Negro. Two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings and two warring ideals in one dark body who dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. I am, um, I've been reading you poems by black poets this month. And I want you to know that um, it's difficult to do that to a multicultural church. If we were an all black church, this would be a sense. We'd all be on the same page. I could read these poems. You'd know where they were about and why they were for. It wouldn't seem at all out of place. If this was an all white church, many of you would be like, what in the Sam heck is going on right now? But we're a multicultural church. And so part of my duty as the pastor of this church is to work very hard to make sure that our differences do not divide us, but our sameness unites us while also at the same time not negating or ignoring the different experiences with which each one of you has walked in here. It would be wrong of me as a pastor to say, there's no black or white, we're all one. Because if you're black, it's not like that. It would be wrong of me to say that if you're Hispanic and you live in this country, things are fine, you should not worry, you're here. 
But that's not the same for most brown folks who are in our church, especially. And so it's important that I, as the pastor of this church, address many of those issues. But I also understand that while that can be a challenge for many of us, some would say, I really don't want to hear about those kinds of conversations because they're just sort of, you know, in the way from me. There are others, especially people of color, who don't want to hear a white pastor talk about this because what would he know about this? And those nuances are not lost on me. As a pastor, I do not preach politics, but I won't stray away from issues that affect our people. And I'll always try to find a gospel center on many of these issues, amen? I want you to know it's super hard to do this because today I'm gonna get an email from somebody in our church and usually it's someone who did not attend it but heard the podcast and they'll tell me why this was wrong from that perspective. And then I'll get another email who will tell me why it was wrong from another perspective. The reason I do what I do is so that we can be together. Maybe this is the first time you heard a poem by W.E.B. Du Bois. Maybe this is the first time that you heard that from a black experience, there was a duality. You can't just be an American. You are a black American first. Maybe this is the first time you ever heard a white pastor talk about this, all right? I'm going to ask for your grace in this season. Next week, I'm going to give you one more poem. And next week, I'm going to challenge you one more time to consider that this stuff matters. Amen? It's good for you to be in a row with people who don't look like you. Amen? Yeah. But don't ignore the fact that they don't look like you. Amen? So how do we do this together? Well, the answer is the way we do this together, the way we tackle these issues is by working together. It's not enough for your pastor to just quote scripture and then quote poems and try to walk us down this road. It's also important for you to own some of this and have hard conversations and be in this thing together. And this duality that W.E.B. Du Bois talks about, that the Apostle Paul talks about, this difference between what I'm thinking about long-term and what I have to deal with short-term, that is something that is not unique to you. Even though you experience it, I want you to know every single person in this room experiences some sense of duality. Am I who I know I'm supposed to be? Is this all there is? Am I going to go where I want to go? How do I navigate this thing back and forth? The enemy's trick for most of us is to challenge us to think that we're the only one who deals with this. The enemy tries to tell you everyone in this room is super saved and you're the only one who's a walking disaster. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Except for the fact that haven't you heard that exact sentence? Oh, if they knew. You're like barely saved. (laughs) You ever felt barely saved? Just like if you say it so, I don't know. This is true for all of us, ready? Even me. I have days where I'm like, I don't think I can do this anymore. You just, I wanna go home. And Paul speaks right to that moment that each one of us has had where it's just like, I don't know if I matter or if this is real. And he challenges us in that moment to think missionally. 
There's three things we're going to talk about today. The first things first is, is I just know that this is going to work. I want to talk today, first point, uh, of what it's like to be absolutely optimistic about the gospel. Second thing we're going to talk about is, so it's time to get to work. Once you know that things are going to work out, we're going to talk about how you can work it out. And then the last thing, because it's 21st century and we're just about post-pandemic, I think, I'm going to encourage you to know that you cannot work from home. Amen? I know this is going to work because Jesus said it was going to work, and now I'm going to get to work, but you can't work from home, not in the gospel. Amen? All right, so let's talk about this. In the beginning of this text, the Apostle Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, my imprisonment and my suffering and all the heck I've been through, it will work out for my deliverance. It's my eager expectation, and it's my hope. And I know I'm not going to be ashamed, not even tripping about it. I have full courage in Jesus Christ. It reminds me of um, one of the characteristics of great leaders is that they're eternally optimistic. Eternally optimistic. When I was um, about 25, I, I got hired by a friend of mine from high school. He had started a company that was a, a mobile startup. Do you remember when Haiti had the earthquake about 15 years ago? And then the Red Cross had this thing where you could send a text message and make a donation on your phone. Do you remember that? Okay. So that was the company that my friend from high school started. And he, he had called me before all of that happened. And he said, I want you to come on board. You have a nonprofit background and I have a mobile background and I want you to, to help me do this thing. And, and so we started this work together. The company was called MGIV. And, and when we started off, we would go to the major carriers, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, and T-Mobile, and we would ask them, hey, we know how it works. When people want to buy something from you, like a ringtone or a game, you, you split the proceeds of that. You keep half and send the other half to whoever creates the content. But here's what we want to do. We want to make it so that people can make a donation through their phone, and you keep nothing. You just pass it right to the nonprofit. And we would, <laughs> me and Jimmy, <laughs> my high school buddy, would walk into these meetings and I'd be in tennis shoes, and he'd be in flip-flops. <laughs> and we would walk up to these, I mean, I don't even know how we got the meetings, but we would be in these meetings with chairmans of the board of these transnational corporations, and we would say, this is what we want you to do. And they would go, no, leave. Who got you in here, right? And they'd slam the door in our face. And every time it happened, and it happened every time for the first three rounds of meetings, We'd get in the cab, we'd head back to the hotel, and Jimmy would say, this is great. <laughs> we're wearing them down. And I remember being like, no, we're not, man. We almost got arrested just now. There was this thing about Jimmy. This is the same kid I grew up. We knew each other since second grade. Jimmy would go with his mother to Costco and make her buy him that giant box of fruit roll-ups. You know, it had like 50 boxes of fruit roll-ups. And then he would take a box of fruit roll-ups every day and sell each fruit roll-up for $1.50 to those of us for whom our mothers gave us $1.50 for lunch. I was one of those suckers. I'd waste my whole lunch money on one fruit roll-up, and every day, Jimmy would go home with 15 bucks cash. So when he called me and he said, I'm starting a company, I'm like, you bet I'm working for this guy. Let's go. And we would leave these meetings, and he would have this sense of optimism, kind of a wild-eyed Doc Brown behavior, like, this is good, great Scott, it's going to work. And I remember thinking, this guy is a fool. And then he'd set another meeting. 
get shot down. And he'd go, I think we got one more. And then one day, we were in a meeting with U.S. Cellular. And they said, okay. And we together played it real cool. <laughs> I was like, Whoa! thank you very much. It's good to do business with you. And we went home that day and we wrote letters to all of the doors that were closed in our face. And we said, hey, just so you know, U.S. Cellular just said yes to mobile donations for major nonprofits. And if you don't say yes to, we're going to write a press release that says U.S. Cellular has led the way in caring for human beings. <laughs> And that was Jimmy's idea. <laughs> and the next month, every carrier said yes. And then one morning we woke up and there was an earthquake in Haiti. And our client, the Red Cross, said, let's turn it on. And in one day, through mobile donations that had never been done before, we raised $44 million in $10 donations. <laughs> Amen. And Jimmy said to me, told you it would work. And I was like, well done, sir. <laughs> there was something in him that just knew this would work. Even when no one else agreed that it would work. Now, I, I hate to tell you, Jimmy's not a believer, but I'm believing that he will one day. There's something unique about believers in the impossible, amen? It made it so that I followed him through a crazy wild season in the startup world, and it made it so that the people in a church like Philippi or Corinth or Thessalonica or Galatea would follow Paul, who would write to them from prison and say, just so you know, I know this is going to work. It's the kind of foundational understanding of the goodness and sovereignty of God upon which you can build a foundation for your entire life. It is the kind of full persuasion that each one of us as believers should aspire to and let the Lord's mercy do his work in us so that even when we have weakness, we can remind ourselves he's good, he's God, and I'm his. And when Paul writes about this certainty to the church, he says, here's why I'm certain. You ready? He says in verse 19, I know that through your prayers, I need you to understand just how valuable your prayers are. You see, as Christians, we think that we should come to the altar and receive prayers from the, the leaders, right? Oh, if only the pastor would pray for me. Only oh, if only that team would pray for me, then things would change. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. It's your prayers. Paul is writing a truthful statement that I want to tell you right now that every leader would love to be able to say, would that every pastor could look at his church and say, I feel your prayers. But we don't always do that. You know, most of us as Christians, we're looking to be prayed for. We're not praying for. Paul says, now, I know it's going to work because I know you've been praying for me. And I always love to read in this text and wonder how many people in Philippi were like, oh. <laughs> Paul doesn't ask, have you been praying for me? No, he just knows. Hey, you said we were in this thing together, right? Then I know you've been praying for me. And because you've been praying for me, check this out. I know that through your prayers, I have the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. 
He says, did you know that when you pray, the Holy Spirit walks with me and he talks with me and he fights for me and he's my deliverance. And notice the kind of Holy Spirit that Paul talks about here. He does not say the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit is the same Spirit that was on Jesus when he came, when he ministered, when he healed, when he delivered, when he died, and yes, when he rose again. Because of your prayers, that same Spirit dwells in me and is with me though I write to you from prison. He says, because of that, I know this is going to work. You see that confidence that he has? He says, you and me praying together and him and me fighting together. There is no way I can lose this fight. That's the certainty that Paul is modeling for those of us who are believers in Christ Jesus, which is to say, ask yourself this, is he for you? Yes. Are you praying? Are you praying? Are you praying for each other? Are you planning to pray but failing to pray? You ever do this? You ever get like a thought in your head and you're like, I need to pray about that. And then that's the end of the sentence. <laughs> so weird, right? You know, I should definitely pray about that. Anyway, that is the urging of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I'd love to have a conversation right now. Paul says, I just know that this is going to work for me because you've been praying and because he's been fighting and check this out. My posture because of this knowledge is this. I am full of expectation and hope. He says, because I know this, I'm also kind of eager. Like when you're a little kid and you know you're next on the ride, like this is going to be awesome. Paul is saying, because I know I can't wait to see just how he does it. It's going to be so much better than I thought. And that's the posture that every believer, ready, is allowed and afforded to possess every day. Did you know that? Did you know you're allowed to wake up every single day with expectation and with hope? Did you know that that is available to you? That is on the menu at brunch at the bed and breakfast of Jesus Christ. Question is, did you come down? Did you come to the table? Or are you allowing your own thoughts and the enemy to fight through with you and to say, expect what? Expect the worst. Hope for what? Hope for nothing. That's what the enemy wants to say to you. Whenever your optimism, your expectation, and your hope are under attack, you can rest assured that the enemy is trying to fight something great in your life. I want you to know right now, Jesus says, if you have me, you have hope even when it's black outside. If you have me, you can expect greatness. My goodness and mercy are with you all the day of your life. I'm good, always good all the time. And you and I are together. I want you to wake up in the morning and say, it's going to be a great day. Unless it's snowing again this week. Why does it keep snowing in the middle of the week? When my sons are excited, they're like, snow day. Great. He says, every single day you can wake up like that. And, and then there's this little bonus. He says, I won't be ashamed, I know that. But with the full courage now, as always, that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Full courage. What a statement. He says, if you are the kind of person who, are living, who lives in fear and timidity, you don't have to be that ever again. 
The invitation is that not only will you be confident, not only will you be expectant, not only will you be hopeful, but you will be as bold as a lion. Why? Because you got it? No. Because he's got it. You see, my God is an all-consuming fire, and yes, he is the lamb, but he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he fights for me. The Bible says he's my banner. It goes before me. He's never been defeated, and every one of the enemies who's come my way, he has defeated at my feet. He says, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's my God. So when he says you can be expectant, that's good, and when he says it's hopeful, that's great, but he says you can have courage because I fight for you, and that is what I need on dark days. Amen? Amen? That's the kind of faith I want to walk in. Paul says, I just know that this is going to work. I trust him no matter what. And that's the foundation that Paul invites us to that affords us the opportunity to have the conversation he has in the following verses. He says, I know that this is going to work and so now it's time to go to work. But before he talks about working, he kind of like negotiates with himself. Have you seen this? Verse 21, he says, um, you know, for me to live, it's Christ. To die, that's gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, but I can't even figure out what I should pick. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to be with Jesus. But to be here with you is is more necessary. I love that he has this conversation out loud in a letter. It reminds me uh, of, of Red Fox. Does anybody know who Red Fox is? When, thank you, some of my more mature believers in the building. When I was a little kid, Red Fox is a comedian from the 70s and 80s, absolutely vulgar, but still hilarious. Um, and, and he, had, he used to have this show called Sanford and Son. And when I was a little kid, it was just the tail end. Remember that? I love this church. In the 70s and 80s, it was just sort of the tail end of the reruns of that. And I remember being a little kid and watching these shows. And Red Fox played this old man, and he ran a, a salvage shop, and he lived there with his son, and he was, he was a widower. And, and him and his son would always get into these weird circumstances. And, 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 and there was this recurring theme in the life of Red Fox, his character, that at the slightest provocation or the, more, the most minute inconvenience, he would fake a heart attack. Like, you know, his son would just be like, can you pick that up? And he'd go, he'd slap his chest. Ha! And he'd throw his hand in the air and he'd boggle his eyes like he was all disoriented, right? And he would say this phrase, the same phrase every time. He'd say, this is the big one. And then he'd talk to his wife in heaven. He'd say, Elizabeth, I'm coming home. And I just thought that was the weirdest thing when I was a little kid. Because I didn't know what he was doing, but I used to just giggle and laugh and laugh. And, and, and today, as I'm older, I realize like he had this earnest desire to be with his wife again. I mean, he, he loved living with his son, but he missed his wife. And, and he would think about being with her the day to come when he was with her. I imagine it's the same sort of affection that is happening in Paul, but to a greater extent, and hopefully the same affection that is warranted in the life of a believer, which is like, what will it be like to be with Jesus? 
I'm not telling you to fake a heart attack every time your boss asks you to do something. But you could say, Jesus, I'm coming. Yeah. Amen. Paul is, is in this moment, he's speaking to that duality in a very real and personal sense. And I want to say this to you today. It, it, he has a yearning for more. And, and you, you too should have a yearning for more. As believers, we should never find all of our fulfillment here. You actually should end each day feeling not quite fulfilled. Because this world can't give you everything it needs to give you. Amen? And the, the pleasures of this world are fleeting and the relationships are flawed. I mean, we're all humans on a human experience and it stands to reason that no, not one person can give you all the things that you can give and that you should receive. There should be something in you that, yes, for me to die would be, would be gain. And it's true for the Christian, to die is gain. I mean, for the world, death is tragedy. Death means end, finality. It's full of grief and fear and pain. As a pastor, I get to do funerals. And I meet with families, and some of them are wonderful. They'll say, Pastor, he, he passed away, and he loved the Lord. And they, they'll go through this litany of experiences of a life lived for Jesus Christ. And those are the sermons, and those are the, the memorial services that are just easy I get to say, we know he, she is in heaven. And then there's other times I meet with families and I don't get to say that. But, but I get to speak to the, to the conundrum of death. That is, it is the end here. But for the believer, it's just the beginning. When Paul says for me to to die is gain. What he's saying is death for the believer means I no longer have to be stuck in this sin-filled and fallen world. I never have to be imperfect myself. I never have to want to do one thing but struggle and do another. I never have to fall. I never have to worry. I never have to be in pain anymore because it's true that Jesus makes all things new. Death for me means glory, perfection, joy but I'm here Ooh. he says I gotta tell you it would be far better for me if I went there but God hasn't taken me yet some scholars believe that the way in which Paul writes this in the original Greek he's actually writing to say I told Jesus I'm ready to go but I realized you're not ready for me to go so I changed Jesus' mind. There's some scholars that believe that when Paul writes this, he says, Jesus and I had a talk and we agreed to postpone my death until this is done, which is an amazing way to look at this text, right? Can you imagine if <laughs> Jesus was like, it's gonna happen on a Thursday and you're like, give me till Monday. I wanna go to the Stoke Adventure Time and I just feel like they need me. When Paul writes this, he says, I do want to go, but for some reason God hasn't taken me, so I need to look around and realize I'm needed right here, right now. That's why he says to live is 
Christ. He says, for me, to live is not to preach. Oh, here it is. To live is not to teach. It's not to travel. It's not to do. It's not to be seen. It's not to write letters. It's not to be Paul. It's Christ. When Paul writes this, he's not to say that to live means to do things for Christ. He says, for me, every moment, every ounce, every breath of this life is all about Christ. To imitate him to reflect him, to glorify him, to breathe him in and to breathe him out, to learn about him, to serve him. He says, my whole life is Christ. That's it, plain and simple. And what he does in this moment is to try to ask you this. If you want it to be true that to die is gain, then it must similarly be true that for you to live is Christ. Now, I want you to fill in the blanks. You remember Mad Libs when we were a kid? I would have like two words and they would say, pick an adjective, right? For you, right now, I need you to ask yourself, if I were to give you the sentence, to live is fill in the blank. What is it? Is it to work? Is it to be married? Is it to live is my kids? I want you to think about the thing that you live for. And I want you to understand that it's so very common for many of us to put a good thing right there. To live is to love. So poetic. It's like a sign in everyone's kitchen. But if it doesn't say to live is Christ, then to die won't be gain. We love that phrase, don't we? For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. What he's saying is the only way that death is gain is if life is Christ and Christ alone. If I wake up and I go, it's you and me, what do you want? Then when I stand in eternity, he says, it's you and me, Welcome to your reward. I want you to understand that the standard is higher than you think. It is not just say a prayer and hope for the best. It is not just say the prayer and have good church attendance and then do good things. That isn't it. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's the only way that this works. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And and what he's also really doing in this moment as he deliberates with himself in this letter that he writes to them but pours out his own thinking in the public sphere is he's saying, I gotta be honest, I wanna go, but I recognize that I belong to you. He says, I realize that the Lord hasn't taken me yet because my job with you isn't done yet. I wanna go. (laughs) I mean, I love it with you guys, but it's not gonna be like heaven but he's not ready, so I'm not done. And what he's trying to say in this moment is to paint a picture that your presence matters. Or if I were to say it like this, we need you at work and you can't work from home. You have to come into the office of the church of Jesus Christ so we can work together. Amen? 
says this in verse 25 and 26 as he closes out the conversation. He says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me you have ample cause to glory because I'm coming to you again. We've been all kind of living in the Zoom world, right? And, um, and our teams still do Zoom. I, we don't have offices at church, and I like to give our teams as much freedom to work on their own at their own time. And so a lot of our team meetings are done on Zoom, and so sometimes that means that we're not all, um, we're not all showing our face. How many of you have been in a Zoom meeting where there's a bunch of black screens, and you're the only bone, bonehead with a picture on? And you're like, well, all right, I'll turn mine off too. Well, I started to ask people, please turn on your cameras. I want to know that you're there. Um, I think it's a sign of respect, amen? I just sound like an old curmudgeon, right? Turn on your camera, you whippersnapper. Um, I ask people to turn theirs on, and I turn mine on, because whenever I see a black screen, for some reason in my mind, I always assume they're sitting in a black cave room. Like, I don't assume they just have it off. I just always assume their computer's in front of them, and all the lights are off, and they're just lost in the darkness, right? I'm like, do you need to turn on a light? What's going on? I just assume that that's it because I couldn't for the life of me think that you would join a meeting but not really join a meeting, right? You ever have somebody who's on a Zoom meeting with you but they're also in the middle of the loudest restaurant in the history of restaurants, right? You're like, so what are you doing? And they're like, catch up on aisle nine, right? Just like, what in the world? Those intricate difficulties that we've experienced in the pandemic that have to do with technology point to the fact that It just doesn't cut it. You know, being online is not the same as being in person. It's why we turned off our live stream. Did you know that all the glory is in the gathering, right? We say it all the time. All of the meat is in the ministry. The good stuff is here amongst one another. Amen? And when Paul writes this, he recognizes it. He says, I totally understand now that my presence with you, my serving of you, my serving of the ministry to you, that is of great value and importance to you, and I want to be present. And what he says in verse 25 and 26 to bring this home is to remind us why we're called to be here. Yes, it's true, many of us want to go, but we're here for one another, and here's the reasons why. He says this, he says, I'm convinced that I need to remain and continue. This is the teaching today. Ministry is not about showing up once. Serving the Lord with your life is not about making a grand entrance or a big debut. It is about remaining and continuing. If you've ever been a church that brings in big name speakers or if you've ever had an evangelist come and they just whip up the room and it's super exciting and then they leave, there's always something left empty in us, which is now what? You ever met somebody who runs, runs the room and they're so charismatic when they enter all eyes and then they leave and then we're all left wanting something more. The apostle writes in this moment and he says, we're called to each other and we're called to each other long term. You can't just be there on one Sunday. Oh, here we go. You ready? You can't just be there on one Sunday. Ministry is life together. You wouldn't fall in love or marry someone who was only home on Tuesdays. Amen? When you're coming home. That wouldn't cut it for you, would it? You'd be like, I'm going to need a little more give and take. And the principle is true in ministry, which is this. We are called to each other in consistency. You you need to be here together 
continuously. Remain with one another. When it's easy, of course. When it's hard, absolutely. Because we're one body. I'm not giving up on you just because it might be inconvenient. God put me here with you for this reason. And your struggle is my mission field. Oh, if we could get this in our life and in our church. Your pain and your problems are the purpose that God put us in the same church. Did you know that? Oh, I wish you could get this. I have leaders. We're raising up leaders, raising up pastors. And, you know, it's hard to do ministry. And sometimes they'll be like, Pastor, I'm dealing with this person. They're just driving me crazy. And I'm just pulling my hair out. And I'm like, that's so great. And they're like, what? Oh, yeah. God put you in their life to help them with that. And we're so quick to pull the cord, tuck tail and run. Because it's so inconvenient. We're so frustrated. Oh, they just drive me crazy. Good. Help them stop driving people crazy. Seriously, sit down and invest in each other. They're never on time. Great. Explain to them why on time is important to you. Help them figure that out. God brought us together to remain and walk long term. And then he says this, last line and then we'll pray. He says this, I realize that I'm here to continue And I'm here to continue with you so that you continue your progress. So you continue your growth. It is my job that you get better according to the will of Christ Jesus for your life. And it's measured in two ways. You ready? Your progress in joy and faith. He says, I want to go to Jesus. I'm in, I'm in prison again. I don't know how much longer I have to live. I want to go home. I'm tired. But God's got me here for you so you can be filled with more joy. And if that's what he wants to do through me for you, then I'm in. He says, he wants me to stay here for you for your faith. That word faith, pistis, it means persuasion to constancy or obedience. He says, and I've been obedient and it's got me here. But there's just a little bit more that he wants to do through me for you. And I'm in. And that's who we are. You see, this world will offer you no shortage of communal gatherings, clubs, and places that you can belong. But there is only one where the invitation is to say, I am not leaving you. I don't know what it's going to take, and you're probably going to drive me crazy, but I think I might drive you crazy too. And so I'm, I'm in. And then, then when he calls me, I'm out. But until then, we have a job to do. Church, I want to challenge you today. Don't be the kind of people who simply receive ministry. Don't do it. Don't be a consumer Christian. Don't come and partake of the table without coming into the kitchen and helping clean up or cook. You have a gift, and we need you. 
We need all of you, the very best of you. And I need you too. Let this church be marked by the way in which we care for each other, the way we endure with each other. Paul ends the sentence with this. He says, I have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because I'm coming to you again. That's the invitation. We say, you know, it didn't work the first time I tried to join a church. They were so weird. Good. Do it again. You know, I didn't really like serving on the, the, the front welcome team. I just didn't know where I fit. Good. Do it again. You know, when I read this Bible, it never makes any sense to me. Good. Do it again. I went to small group, and they served the weirdest kale salad. Good. Do it again. That's what the, the apostle says. He says, we're in this thing together. It's not over till he says it's over. Let's do it again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. You're good. You're mighty. You're worthy of all of our praise. God, today, we recognize the duality of the life of the Christian, which is we yearn to be with you, and yet we're not there yet. So, Father, right now, would you grab our hearts? Would you convince us of our place and our purpose amongst these, your people, why you've called us for such a time as this to this body of believers? And God, would you give us full courage in Jesus Christ with expectation and hope to know that this is going to work and I'm time, it's time for me to get to work. And I'm going to do it again and again and again until you call me home. In Jesus' name, amen.